let's stand together and we're already standing. Let's sing, our God is greater. come before you and we give you thanks for scriptures and for songs 
that make us as Christians just stand a little taller with a little bit more uh, courage and strength. And this is certainly one of those songs. If our God is for us, who can stand against us? Lord, we just give you praise uh, that you are our sovereign God and uh, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, as we walk away from this place here in a few moments, uh, help us, Lord, that we would be more knowledgeable in your word and not just knowledgeable, but being able to apply what we've learned, that our lives would be changed and, and the world would be changed because of what we've learned and how we apply it. Lord, help us to worship you today in spirit and in truth. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you would grab one of these um, white cards, it's a connection card. And so please, please fill that out and you can pass that in at the uh, end of the service. There, uh, as, you, as you leave, we won't be passing the plates, but as you leave, you can... Uh, you can do that. Um, so today's uh, passage from Pastor Philip is going to be talking about an aspect of God that he is in and, and through and over all. And I just thought of this song that reminds us, if that's true, and it is, that he must and has to be all to us. Amen. Sing it with his precious cornerstone. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation. You are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We
song that came to mind this week as uh, Brother Philip preached on uh, God, our, our Father, one, one God, one Father. We're thinking of the Trinity, and when I think of the Trinity, I'm so old, I think of uh, the doxology. Uh, praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, right? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the doxology. The hymn tune to that is called the Old 100th, and it's, uh, they call it the Old 100th because of its relationship to Psalm 100. Okay, uh, the hymn tune writer was a French composer uh, back in the 1500s, and uh, this hymn found its way into the Genevan Psalter. Now, a psalter is a hymnal full of psalms. Okay, and now think about Geneva in 1500. What was going on? The Reformation, and so one of the things that happened. Uh, the Genevan Psalter was actually put together as a direct um, result of the teachings of Martin Luther, John Calvin, who championed the cause of congregational singing. Up until that point, uh, you came to Mass and you heard the professionals sing something in Latin of which you had no idea what they were singing. And they said, no, that can't be. Worship can't be that way. It has to be where every one of God's children is involved and participating. And so we owe a great debt of gratitude to those theologians who helped us down that road. Let's sing this together. Let's praise God from whom all blessings flow.
praise to the King. Praise to the King who transcends His crown and kingdom never end. Now and throughout eternity, I'll praise the One who died for me. I praise God. 
God, one Father of us all. Amen. Oh, it's love so undeniable. I, I can hardly speak. He's so unexplainable. I, I can hardly think as you call me. Deeper still as you call me. Deeper still as you call me. I think my throat would have been clearer had David not chosen one of my favorite hymns to do. It's very rare that I can sing that through without getting emotional. What an incredible song it is. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, I reflect back on my Christian pilgrimage and I remember of all places sitting in a deer stand and holding in, a book, holding in my hand a book called Knowing God. Now keep in mind, this book was actually prescribed for us to read or as an assignment in my first year of college. And it was a charismatic school where I played ball. It's called Emanuel College. And so but that's the book that the professor uh, had us to read. And I remember that was kind of the first time I had ever read a statement about how important it is for us to be able to call God our Father. As a matter of fact, Natalie and I had the privilege of pastoring uh, a fellow by the name of Rami Ibrahim. And his name was literally spelled Abraham, but called Ibrahim. And he was a full-blooded Egyptian. His wife's name was Jennifer. And it was down in Alabama where he was working for the Bureau and passed through our church and joined. And I'll never forget him telling me the story of a young girl who came to faith in Christ simply by hearing the words, or referring to this expression, they called him father. 
which in Muslim understanding is, is an impossibility, but for the Christian, that's who he is to us. He is our Father, and that's what the Lord God used to draw faith into the life of this dear lady. Here's what J.I. Packer says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well. What a blessing to call him our Father. Listen to the text. Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We spent a lot of time talking about those relational aspects. Now catch this. This unity has already been brought to us through Christ. Right? This unity has been brought to us. And so then there's these interrelated realities that we walk in as the people of God. And we've gone over these relational unities over and over again. And how God has brought this together. And then, notice this. Eager to maintain the unity. We don't produce the unity. Christ does. But we're called by God to maintain the unity that he has bought for us. And brought to us as his people. And then, what an, what an abrupt transition to verse 4. I mean, nothing leading up. Just abruptly in verse 4. There is one body. One spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And today, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So great pains we should take. To preserve, keep, and protect the unity of the spirit that God has created in the hearts of his people. And then this abrupt movement by Paul with no transition to Christian unity. And we've called it the foundation of Christian unity. So we see all these relational dynamics of how we should treat one another. Forbearing together in love. Eager to maintain. But what's the foundation of that particular unity? And thus we've talked about that it's Trinitarian. Now, we don't follow Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. It follows Holy Spirit, Son, and Father. Holy Spirit, Lord, Father. But we move to this particular one. Again, there's seven affirmations of truth. And I've called it the seven ones. But then there's three. Uh, these affirmations are interwoven together in the Spirit, Son, and Father, we've, we've noticed this in the text. So we began with the Spirit and we moved to the Son, one Lord. Today we will end this section with God, with one God and Father. I noticed that several theologians and commentators believe that this is actually a summary statement of the unity. And I can get that. Why? Because one God and Father, again, this is emphasizing uh, the Trinity. And so this is a summation. So it's a wonderful description of the first person of our triune God. 
And I looked at that statement, one God and Father of all, and I thought, is that enough for me to preach on a Sunday morning? Is this going to be just an embarrassment to the people for me to say that and only preach about 10 minutes? Because how much is really there? And then the more I looked and studied and how the phrases, especially in the prepositions, are given to us, I thought, you know, these prepositions actually move the biblical world and our world. So now it's like, how can I get all this into one sermon? But the last time I checked, Kansas City plays way on up in the day, right? Okay, all right, y'all are good with that? All right, let's, let's, let's study God's Word together. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Find out what the Word of God is actually saying to us in this regard. So, one heading, the person of the Father. Notice I said person. Three persons in one, right? And this beckons, harkens back to Deuteronomy 6. There's no question about that. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, the person of the Father works unity in the body of Christ. So, notice how the expression begins. Look, one God. So, let's make sure that we clarify something here. Is Paul saying there's one God and Jesus is not that God? Right? Because he comes down here and he says, one God. Well, folks, understand first, he's not excluding the Son from Godhead. Or he's not saying that Jesus is less than God. What he's doing, again, is, is magnifying the personhood. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let me show you another example of that. Because it would be easy for people to look down and say, well, now he's calling God, God, and only Father. Now, that's not what he's saying at all. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Very similar wording. And it would be great for us to see this for many reasons in context. But notice how he expresses the Godhead in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. By the way, we've already decided that Lord means kurios in the New Testament, which comes from Yahweh in the Old. So Jesus Christ is God. Okay? However, look what it says in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, verse 6. Yet, for us, there is one God, the Father... From whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one curios, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Y'all get it? See how clear that is to distinguish the persons of the Godhead. So, has God's fatherhood, once we've talked about God, now let's... And if we were dealing with the Trinity, and I was teaching in a class or a Sunday night theology, we'd spend a lot of time on that phrase, God, okay? But for the sake of our time, this says God and Father. Have we learned anything so far about the fatherhood of God out of the book of Ephesians? Now again, let's stay in context, and it's in the book of Ephesians. Well, what about chapter 1, verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Again, notifying the distinguishing characteristic of the person of God the Father. <clears throat> and how about verse 5? Even though his name is not mentioned, you would not be adopted as a son unless he was your father. Right? What does it say in verse 5? He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. What a statement of the fatherhood of God. Chapter 2 verse 18. Here it says we have access to the Father through the Son through the, and the Spirit. Listen to chapter 2 verse 18. And for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Implicitly in verse 19, Paul addresses God's fatherhood by calling us members of his household. Which speaks of the fact that if you're a member of the household, then he is your father. Verse 19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then here's a magnificent one, chapter 3, verse 14. Look at it. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So here the Father is that one from whom the whole family, church in heaven, which that's where most of Christians are today, Right? And the church on earth is named. So this means his dominion over them. His ownership over them. We are brought into the family. And we as the people of God take on the family name. We are owned by our father. We are sealed by the spirit of God. So that we are irrevocably his children. Not only that. He's driving home an affirmation. That binds us together. Y'all understand this. This unity is grounded that we have in this church because we have one Father. And he's emphasizing that to us. We experience the unity because we have one Father. We have one Father which means that it makes us one family. That means all of us that are in Christ we're brothers and sisters. And we have an inviolable, which means never to be broken, link together that makes us one. Makes us one. So then Paul adds, of all. Y'all see it in the text? Here it is. One God and Father of, say it, all. Now, the big question is what does that mean? All. Okay? So, when I've read commentary after commentary after commentary and looked at the languages, here's what I've found. There are two basic ideas that divide people in two camps regarding what all actually means. The first one would be this. It is simply all Christians. So it would read like this. One God and Father over all believers. Others forcefully argue that it means all things. All creation itself including all peoples. So it's safe to say in the broadest sense possible that we have to say God is indeed the father of all things. We have to say that to a certain degree. Why? Because he is the creator. He is the originator of all life. And he is himself the progenitor of all of life. He is the source in that regard of all things concerning creation, originator, and progenitor. Right? Uh, Have y'all lost me yet? Let me show you an example of that. Acts chapter 17. Incredible statement. Look at the word of God. Are you turning? I know you're looking at me. But it's really good to see the page of scripture. And what the Bible actually says. Acts 17. Let me get a running start. Verse 
25. All right. If I keep going back and looking down, I'm going to keep wanting to go further back. But verse 24, here's what it says. Chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place and or existence, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for, notice this, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring so in this sense he's the father of all because he is the creator progenitor he is the originator of all things yet in a narrower sense he's the God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ in a special eternal relationship When you read through John's gospel, isn't it amazing when you get over to the high priestly prayer of Christ and he's doing this interchange with his father. He's talking about the glory they had from the beginning and the desire for us to be one in unity. So we have to say there's a uniqueness between them that does not exist with anyone else in the universe. God the Father, God the Son. That's in a unique sense that no one else in the created universe has or will ever have in that full sense of the word with the father and son relationship. So we can also say, however, that the father has a very unique, special, redemptive kind of father-son-daughter-father relationship with all who are in Christ. We call him our father in a way that an unbeliever cannot call God father. Are y'all tracking with me? This is obviously true. And if you are not a Christian today, then the only way you can refer to him as father would be only in the sense that he's your creator. You owe him ultimate allegiance because he is the source of your very life. Okay? You owe your source of existence to the God of the Bible. He brought you into existence. And he sustains your very existence now. He is allowing you to breathe the air that he made. He is allowing you to drink the water that he made. He's allowing you to walk upon the earth that he created. The God who sustains all things keeps your heart beating and he sustains your life. There's only one God and Father who's the source of life, right? Yet there is a real sense in which if you're not a Christian... You're prohibited from calling him your father based on a redemptive sense. If you are not in Christ, then you are not adopted into God's family. If you are not a son and daughter of the Lord by faith, then you're not in his family. So in this unique and special redemptive way, only those in Christ can call him father. This is very clear in the book of Ephesians. So should we take father of all in a broad sense or a redemptive sense? Let's ask a question. Does God have a global, cosmic, universal purpose of God in Christ? Does God have a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth? 
Does he? Well, you better believe it because chapter 1 verse 10 and 11 says this, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Where does that begin to, to, to come to our minds in an understanding? Well, it's in verse 7 through 9. We have this mystery that has been given to us. And it is the mystery of the Son of God coming to earth and being the payment for our sins. So there's the saving act that opens our eyes to the fact that God is moving all things to sum it up in Christ. And then you look down to chapter 1 verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of all, who fills, what does it say? All in all. Okay? Now, I'm not going to deal with this text yet in the fullest sense. We'll do it at the end of the sermon. But look at chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians. Anybody like Bible drill? That's why you need your Bibles when you come to church. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 27. Fascinating passage of Scripture. I read it just to wet your feet in an understanding of God's plan, ultimate plan, that all things will be summed up in Christ. Listen to this in verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. Listen to verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. So this theme, as far as it touches the book of Ephesians, I add that as a qualifier. As it touches what is given in the book of Ephesians, God has a cosmic universal purpose. But he's also got a specific purpose for the people of God. He called you forth from the foundation of the world, and it's called election. And then there's adoption, then there's redemption and sonship and forgiveness and when I read that, it kind of pushes me back on the other side. That this all, the main focus is on, only on Christians. But I simply believe, looking at this text, that when it says all, it has a, the broadest sense to understanding, and it also has the narrower kind when it deals with redemption and the scope of redemption of God saving sinners. How y'all feel about that? Well... Um, I hope you understand that when you deal with terminology in the Word of God, you just can't bump over it. You have to think about what's been said in the book. He says he's going to sum all things up in Christ. He, he doesn't say that because he's just throwing filler out there. There's something to that in the book of Ephesians, okay? Not only the book of Ephesians, but all the way through the Scripture in the New Testament, there's much to be said about that. Now, what about these three prepositions? Who is overall and through all, and in all. Jeffrey, myself, and David sat several times, and I, I told them, I said, here's what I'm preaching. And what, what do you think about these words and the terminology? To think about God being through all. I mean, over all, and through all, and in all. Are these not massive statements? Well, I call them astonishing. Why? Because, again, in the biblical text, it's true that prepositions turn the world of the Scripture. 
They're very short phrases, but I think they go right to the point. I believe they're filled with pounds and pounds and pounds of truth and theological significance for us. Uh, there's an article in the Greek that actually starts the phrases. Okay? And that's important. It's a substantive. And why is that important? Because that renames or refers to something. So who is it referring to? God the Father. It's referring back to God and it's in the appositive case. Now that's not opposition, that's A-P-P-O-S-I-T-I-V-E. Okay? Some of you are finally woken up and look, you're awakened and you're looking because you're thinking, what is this preacher talking about? Well, the reason that's given is describing our God in another way. So folks, this is important to say that God is over all, through all, and in all. It is, it is putting that as an appositive. So the Greek is very abrupt. The one God and Father of all, over all, through all, and in all. Again, there are no less than two massive theological truths, I think, that are underscored in him being over all. As a matter of fact, that construction, epipanton, is a marker of power. It's a marker of control over someone or something. That's what the phrase actually is identifying. And I think, here's what, God, what Paul is saying, is God is supremely transcendent over all. If he's over all, it has to beckon our minds toward that terminology of transcendence. Okay? I'm, I'm teaching you these, these things, kids, so you can go back over to Ozark High School and teach transcendence on Sunday. Okay? What does it mean? Well, it speaks of God's majesty, his holiness, the fact that God is holy other. Which means he is not like us. Okay? So it's transcendency. He has an exalted position over all of his creation. And the idea is that he is over all things. Our God is high, he is transcendent, he is lofty. Uh, there is a work by a man named A.W. Tozer. And the name of the book is called Knowledge of the Holy. And here's what he says. Are you all listening? This is important. Okay, are you listening? Regarding transcendency. We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with a single cell and going up from the fish to the bird to the animal to the man to the angels to the cherub to God. This would be to grant God eminence, even preeminence, but that's not enough. We must grant him transcendence in the fullest sense of the word because forever God stands apart in light that is absolutely inapproachable. He is high above an archangel, as an angel is above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other in the scale of created things, are nevertheless one in that they are both alike because they've been created. They both belong to the category of that which God has made. And thus they are separated from God by infinitude itself. So folks, think about this. As wide as that gulf is from a caterpillar, you think, to the cherub, that's only finite. But the difference between a cherub and God is infinitude. So you got to get your mind wrapped around this understanding of the transcendence of God. For thus says the high an exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. Isaiah 57, 
15. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. Psalm 97 verse 9 says, you are exalted above all gods. Hear this. This God is the transcendent God who made heaven and earth. To be God over all implies something else that I think is inseparable from transcendence. And that's the principle of divine sovereignty. He is indeed sovereign God who is over all. The term sovereign biblically relates to his power and his will. His power is over all. The scripture says in Psalm 62.11 that power belongs to God. His will is over all. It is unrivaled. Thus he is sovereign and he rules over all things. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 47 2, For the Lord most high is to be feared a great king over all the earth. He subdued people under us and nations under our feet. If you look down to Psalm 47 verse 6, it says sing praises to God. That should be our response. Sing praises. Sing praises to the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. We're dealing, folks, with a God who is transcendent, totally other than us. He is high above, exalted in the heavens. He rules and reigns from heaven above. His power and his will are over all things. God holds the supremacy over all things. I don't know about you, but that's an anchor for my soul. It's an anchor for my soul. Why? Because God is not like me. And I'm thankful for that. This truth should bring you comfort in times of affliction. He is high and he's the Holy One. And he rules over all things. Nebuchadnezzar had this confession after God brought him to his knees and sent him out to pasture. If you know the book of Daniel, you know what I mean by that, right? He literally put him out to pasture. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar said. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? He is transcendent, and he's also sovereign. Power belongs to the Lord. He is over all. The second preposition is he is through all. And that Greek expression is dea, looks like D-I-A, and then same principle of pontone. But it communicates intermediate agency. This affirms that God has pervasive eminence. What, a, what an incredible picture. We get that God is far and high above. I hope you get that right. But what is it to say that he actually comes near to us? He comes near to us. He is over us, over all, but he's also through all. I think that this, again, brings about two massive theological principles that are in the Bible. The one is God's providence. It's the providence of God. He is through. It denotes the reality that God is present. That he is working through all things. This is not the New Age thinker who sees God in everything and everything in God. We should see the passage in light of what the biblical text and truth actually presents to us. And that is this, folks. God is present. 
And God is working through all things. This is what we would simply call providence. The Heidelberg Confession asked this particular question. It's question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? And here's the answer. Providence is the almighty, ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures. And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things come to us not by chance, but through his fatherly hand. Our God is through all things in the sense that he is working out all things after the counsel of his own will. There is a special promise given to those of us who are in Christ and we know what it is. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God governs the universe which he is supremely over. He's not only over that universe... He is working through it and bringing all things after the counsel of his will. Call me foolish, whatever you want to say, I do not believe in fortune. I do not believe in fate. I do not believe in chance. I believe in providence. There's also the idea here, not only of God's providence, but agency. God, is God simply up in heaven, standing there looking over the field, And not working out the details. The Bible would tell us that there's more to it than a divinely removed government of human affairs where God is not actually working. It's not only providence but personal agency where God is the active agent not only in his creation but also in the lives of his people. Aren't you thankful for this? The God of the universe who is infinite, who is high and in his holy place is indeed the same God who is working in your life right now. That is an amazing thought. Solomon says in chapter 8 of 1 Kings that he says this, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Isn't that amazing? He knew full well when he built the first temple. And he's given his uh, dedicatory speech that this temple on earth cannot contain our God. As a matter of fact, the very heavens of heavens cannot contain him. And yet, he is active in the lives of his people. To God be the glory. The Bible teaches that God is working in us and through us to accomplish his good. This should transform the way you view life, folks. It ought to transform the way we view our gifts given to us sovereignly by Christ, which we'll see in verse 7. It ought to transform the way we view this church body. And your service to God in this church, serving alongside of one another. Do you ever stop and think about this? God is working through imperfect vessels like me. He's working through an imperfect vessel like you to get his will accomplished in this world. A God that cannot even be contained by the heavens where he dwells is at work in this particular body of believers. This God who works all things according to the counsel of his will and so governs this universe through his providence is the same God who is working in us to perform his purposes to bring him eternal glory. Hallelujah! What a blessing to know this. Listen to Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. 
knowing that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is doing this. God is over us and He is through us. We should marvel at this lofty, transcendent nature of our God, but also this incredible truth that He is near to us and working in and through our lives. There's one more preposition. You ready for it? Some of you are going, whew, I'm glad, right? It is in all. And I would say that the eminence factor is heavier at this point than even through all. Again, you need to avoid pantheism or panentheism, which believes that God is all and all is God. They would just look at a tree and say, well, that's God. No, that's not what this is teaching. What we learn here is that it's the hopeful side of the transcendency of God. Why is it the hopeful side? Because he's got every right not to entertain us at all. But in his transcendence, being high and lifted up, he has become eminently involved with his people. This God who is infinitely over us is near to us. He's close to us. He's with us. Paul can say he's in the midst of us. When we just read Isaiah 57, we saw the transcendency of God. Just listen to this. But let me show you the eminence in the same verse. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. Listen. And also with him who is of contrite heart and lowly spirit to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you hear it? You hear transcendency, high and lifted up. But ministering to, drawing near to those of contrite of heart. That contrast of the transcendence of God and eminence is interwoven throughout the whole Bible, folks. I hope you see this. Stop and consider the model prayer. I didn't call it the Lord's Prayer. I called it the model prayer. Jesus said, pray in this manner. Our Father, what does that speak of? Eminence. Our Father. Who is in, who does that speak of? Huh? What does that speak of? Transcendency. In other words, and then the response in praying is, hallowed be your name, set apart as holy. We see both transcendency of God in the, in the disciples' prayer, model prayer, but we also see the eminence of God. Very God whom the heavens cannot contain is also the God who comes and dwells with his people. You understand that's what we celebrated at the Advent. Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name, say it, Emmanuel. Which means, is that not the quintessential part of God dwelling with us? The Son of God coming down from heaven. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jeremiah 23, 3, 23, 23 says, I am God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away. What an amazing verse. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Whew. Declares the Lord. Any of you getting uncomfortable? Do I not feel heaven and earth? I am, God is so near to us that we cannot hide ourselves from him. He sees everything because he feels heaven and earth. With all of our technological advances... They tell us that a satellite in space can read your license plate. We've got drones flying all over the world. Probably over your house when you're sleeping at night. 
But you ever notice that they have a hard time finding a terrorist in the world? And we've got all those technological advances. But I've got some news for you. God knows exactly where he or she is. God knows. God knows exactly where they are. Our God fills the earth. Let's take a look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Well, grab your Bible, open it up to the middle, you'll be close. Psalm 139. Listen to the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Well, we can hide from him. We can't hide from him because he's always near. And again, for some of us, this is incredibly uncomfortable. For some of us, however, it's a wonderful thing to think about the nearness of our God. Because it means his goodness. Please remember that the consummate revelation of the nearness of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Who came down from heaven. But it's also a matter of... Of indwelling in eminence, right? But what about indwelling? What about the fact that God lives in us? Not just that He's eminently involved and near us, but folks, think about this He is in us. As comforting as His nearness is, there's a greater reality that when you're in Christ, Jesus lives in us through His Spirit. That was the promise, Old and New Testament, that God would dwell in his people and us in him. Just think about this for a moment, how important it is in this body for us to recognize this. 1 Corinthians 14, show you a wonderful passage of scripture. 24. But if all prophesy, what is Paul trying to do? He's trying to clear up chaotic worship in the church of Corinth. Here's what he says. 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters in, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You see how important it is for the Spirit of God to live in us and how this body actually functions. Notice Ephesians 2.19. We've already read this. We are being built up together into this body, a dwelling place for the Lord. He is near to us in redemption. He dwells in us. How many of you remember the little cliches we used to use when we were a lot younger? You ever notice that when you were 10 to 25, there were a lot of cheesy statements that we made as church members? Y'all remember some of these things? There were. I mean, there was the WWJD bracelet fad, and, you know, we, people jumped on it. But there, there's, there's always these things. Kumbaya, my Lord. Right? There's always these things that we put forward, and we use these things. And if you're in your early 50s to 75 to 80, you can think about these more than ones of, those of you who are younger. But I, I got to thinking about that. Do you remember how, when you were young in the faith, you really had this thought that Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit, lives in here somewhere? Are, are y'all following me? You, we think about that. We, and maybe you use that as a, a sentimentality issue or maybe superficially. But I want to remind you something. There's nothing cliche-ish are superficial about the God of the universe living in you. Do you remember how we used to think, God, I can't watch this. I can't go here. I can't entertain this. I can't let my eyes dwell upon this because you live inside of me. Folks, I don't know what you think about that, but that's not superficial. That's Bible. Oh, to God that we would get back to the mentality that, oh God, my eyes don't need to see this because you are the guest resident in my heart. We need to get back to the reality that my eyes do not need to dwell upon this. My actions do not need to go this way. I don't need to do this awful thing and sin against my God because the resident king in the castle of my heart is Christ. When's the last time you thought about that? There's a guest in my life. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. There's things I should not look at. There's places I should not go. There's thoughts I should not entertain. Because Jesus lives in us. That's the strength of being in us. Now, i got to land the plane. Revelation 22. One of these days, there's going to be our faith becoming sight. And the Bible says something about it. Are you ready for this? I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Woo! He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And a little later down, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Hallelujah! Right? One of these days, that which we lay hold of by faith will become sight. 
Oh, and one final passage. I told you about 1 Corinthians. Will you go back there again? And we're going to be finished. Chapter 15, verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. The King of glory, the Lord Jesus, takes his assigned work that he has completed. And his perfect right was to put back into the hands of the Father as an act, an assignment, accomplished, completed, and thus he gives it to the Father. And think about this, thus the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God shall be all in all, supreme in eternity, over all, through all, and in all. Now there's a lot of stuff in that we look at and think, my goodness, what in the world does all that mean? Well, I think it means that God will sum all things up in Christ. I think it means exactly what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 is saying. And in some kind of incredible way, the Son of God has performed his task exactly the way the Father assigned it to him. And he's going to turn it right around and give it back to the Father. Make all things subjected to him. So that it, it all goes back and redounds to the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in conclusion, why are we called to preserve and protect and promote the unity of the Spirit? Do I need to remind you? By going all the way back through the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Could we ever have a better foundation that's already been laid for us than Ephesians 4, 1 through 6? What greater motivation for unity could we ever have than springs forth from one Spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father over all? What greater bonds could we possibly share than being one body? having one hope of our calling, united in one faith, partaking of one baptism, living in the reality that God Almighty is over us, working in each one of us, and indwelling us. And he's going to do this all the way to the consummation of the end, and we'll make no mistakes, and we'll accomplish his purpose. That's great unifying principles. And one of these days, it's going to be absolutely clear what it means for God to dwell in us, and for us to dwell in God. Revelation chapter 22. This unity will be forever uninterrupted. God Almighty and the Lamb will rule His people. May our God protect the unity that He's purchased by working in us, through us, for His eternal glory and our good. To God be the glory. He's Father. He is God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your spirit bearing witness in us. And I know, Father, we've traversed over some heavy thinking and difficult parts of theology and what the Word of God says. But, Father, thank you for your spirit that he's the greatest teacher. He lives in us as your people. And from young and old, Lord, help us to think about the transcendency of our God. The fact that he's near to us. The fact that he's working in us. And, oh, Lord, help us to go back to the day when we think about the fact that Jesus Christ lives in us through the power of the Spirit. And it does matter how we think. 
where we go, what we say, the things that we do. Why? Because we've been bought with a price. And the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. Therefore, Jesus Christ lives, dwells in us. Help us not forget that as a body of Christ. We all have a tendency to want our own way, to act out, to disrupt the unity of the body. Lord, help us think about the fact that your spirit lives in all of us if we know you personally. Help us, Lord, to act in the correct way. Help us to have the relational identities forward, put forward in our minds with humility, meekness, gentleness, forbearing with one another in love. Because you bought and brought this unity to our church. And may we be eager to maintain it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Before we sing, that ending. In all. Think about this. All right, listen. Young people, adults. What's your testimony regarding the fact that Jesus Christ lives in you? I mean, as I was preaching, in my mind and heart, I'm confessing. When I'm preparing the sermon, I'm confessing, God, you live in me. You're the resident king in my life. What about my thoughts? What about my actions? What about what I say, where I go, what I entertain? Is that important? You better believe it. Let's sing together. The altar is open. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain, I myself on with this particular song. Any, before we sing this together, uh, any announcements we need to make? Uh, the women's Bible study is still on tonight. Uh, the leaders aren't sick, so they're going to come, right? But we got a lot of sickness in the church. Uh, part of the reason why we made the decision Wednesday night, we knew that whether it's hit or miss, 
But we just thought about the magnitude of the sickness among kids and adults and thought, well, let's just not bring everybody together on Wednesday night. So, hey, God bless you for being here today. Because I know there's kind of that fear factor that everybody has. But we also fear the one who made us, right? We trust the Lord God. So uh, just keep praying for your brothers and sisters in the Lord and, and uh, pray that the Lord God will take us out of this. Amen? Amen. All right, let's sing this last verse together. With the realm of